0: you <music>
1: brilliant minds and looking at the world around them how do they 360 themselves and 360 the world jamie neil the host asked many questions about their mindset and how they fundamentally operate their world and the world around them hello and welcome back to 360 yourself you got me jamie neil and today i've got a brilliant brilliant guest with me i have joe hello joe how are you doing Hi, how are you? I'm very, very, well. very good, thank you. Whereabouts are you speaking from today? Whereabouts are you?
2: Uh, I'm in my house in South London, south ah. just near Crystal Palace.
1: Lovely. And, uh, yeah. Have you have you um have you gone out at all within the lockdown or isolation, or have you just literally being inside? Um,
2: a sort of a mixture of both. Uh, <laughs> only you know as safely as possible, but um, I've been pretty strict about being in when I need to be in. Mm. Um, only because at the same time I've also done a few jobs which have meant that I've had to go out so therefore I don't want to be kind of you know you got to play by the rules even when you're technically sort of you know breaking the rules by going out and working so I shot a video for the Rolling Stones which was all about uh, lockdown and the lockdown experience and that was shot the first week of lockdown like literally three days after they closed the country. Oh wow
1: okay fair enough.
2: So that was a bit spicy to make that, and um, you know. So after making that, I thought, right, I've sort of played all my like get out of jail free cards, and now I have got to go back in jail and sit next <laughs> and like you know, do nothing. So What's... I've kind of done a bit of both. What you know?
1: so what, what, was the was the idea formed so very quickly then for the Rolling Stars music video because it was it's, it's called Ghost Town and it's all in this like eyeglass uh, spherical lens. Yeah. So was it was the idea done really, really quickly or was it just something that was already happening beforehand? Yeah, well
2: no, so that basically I was I I did this job in right at the beginning of February. You know, I you know, I read a lot of the news, so I was already kind of thinking like, there's this thing happening over the other side of the planet that I think is really weird and could could be a bit you know, it could get a bit tasty if it it carries on spreading so i was already quite aware of like this weird thing happening in history which was like this this virus that wasn't you know mers and sars all got an avian flu all got kind of shut down quite quickly and this one was not really shutting down Mm. and it was spreading unlike you know ebola was quite was quite contained as well and um i went and did this job in brazil and um while i was kind of flying back from brazil to london I was sort of seeing all these really weird, you know, I was just noticing how weird society was getting everyone in the airport was wearing masks and gloves and everyone was and I was sort of sitting there going like, wow, this is getting quite strange. So I started taking these photographs of fisheye on, on a fisheye lens mm-hmm. that I, I had this sort of old lens that I've got thinking that's a, I was just taking it for myself, really these photographs, just thinking they were interesting viewpoints of like, you know, now we're standing in line at the shop. This before the lockdown, but you'd go to the shopping centre, go to, you know, Tesco or the Sainsbury's and you'd be stood in a queue. And I'd be thinking like, wow, I remember seeing photographs in of like Germany in 1928 when everyone's queuing for bread. Yeah, like, yeah, and rations in, in and all that sort of Yeah, <laughs> or in New York in 23 after the Great Depression when everyone's queuing for bread. And now here we are in 2020 and we're all queuing for bread. Like,
0: yeah.
2: It's a really interesting... Uh, kind of, you know, there's, a, there's an interesting, sym- um, uh, I don't know, like a sym- symbiosis between, mm. the, you know, different points of history. So I started taking these photographs, not mainly of me just queuing in the supermarket, <laughs> like, <you> know, <laughs> kind of for myself, just thinking this is kind of weird. And then, um, and then I got sent very quickly, you know, it was maybe one day before... Boris Johnson announced the full lockdown. Mm. I got sent an email from my agent that just said that um, the Rolling Stones had this new track. It was a super secret, really hush-hush. It was their first new music in eight years. And um, they want a video that reflects the time and they want a video delivered in the next six days. So here's the track. Can you write something and shoot something in the next six days that we can put out? Mm. So I was kind of already taking these photographs and kind of thought, actually, that's sort of something that I can carry on doing. Like I can go out fully masked and gloved early in the morning and shoot these things and come back to my house and no one will even know I'm doing it. Mm -hmm. And then, then contacted some photographer friends around the globe, so make some money in different cities to do the same thing that I knew would have the same lens. And then we ended up with yeah, LA... Toronto, Oslo Margate, love it Mm. uh, Margate, Cape Town Kyoto not Kyoto, Osaka and then we did have some people in Hong Kong and New York and Paris but they didn't we just didn't feel like there was other, at the time they were incredibly badly hit places, certainly Mm. Paris and and New York and we thought that that created a different story so we didn't pursue those avenues, we Mm. sort of kept it to these cities that were Maybe a little more unseen in the in the news. Yeah, yeah, uh, yeah. It was about a six day turnaround from start to finish. It was bizarre. It's,
1: it's fascinating how you, it, it's a normal thing within the music video world of the of the quick turnaround. So like to just get like the, someone the label's got an idea, or the management's got an idea, then they just push it to the agent, and then you're like, oh okay, five days, six days to turn something around. It's quite incredible. But I'm hopefully after this lockdown, people reflect on the kind of time process of actually how to deliver a piece of art.
2: Yeah, well I think I think you know there's there's always that big debate in certainly in the music video world less so in the commercial world but certainly in the music video world which is that budgets need to go up and you know and everyone's trying to make things for cheaper and there is a there is a massive obviously argument for budgets staying uh, healthy and growing because video content is such a huge part of society now. And how um, how we communicate but more than that i think it's about time time is such an important factor like on that particular job a 6 day turnaround was great because we were working with something that was so current like i i couldn't make that video now 8 weeks later like mm-hmm. there's no way i could have made it because then you know i was going out and literally standing in on in Trafalgar square at 3 in the afternoon and there was no one there was yeah. completely yeah. eerie or walking down Regent Street and I wouldn't see a single soul and mm. it was so eerie but now you go out and there's more people out and about mm-hmm. so it was a real moment in time so it worked for that project but on the whole you know pieces need time to gestate to kind of formulate ideas to try stuff out you know it mm-hmm. does need like in the theatre you need a rehearsal period and a tech period it's kind of you almost need the same thing in a music video you need time to sort of rehearse the idea in your brain and
1: for sure and because you because you, i didn't know this but you trained at uh, central school of speech and drama um yeah. as, a, as a theater director and so yeah. what well, i'm always fascinated when i'm talking to uh, brilliant people like yourself like that your journey so what i want to know is like take me way 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 back have you always been in theater even as a child how did how did you kind of develop the the artistic bug as they say
2: i mean i had a very I had a very, quite a normal sort of upbringing, I suppose, in terms of, you know, I wasn't, um, I didn't have overly pushy parents that were trying to get me to to, to do this kind of thing at all, you know, um, uh, but they were very supportive. And the one thing that my mum made us do, she made all of us play an instrument. So me and my brothers and sisters, there's four of us and we all play an instrument we all played like a violin or a cello or my mum plays flute. And she was very like, everyone's got to play an instrument, which is, you know, wasn't the easiest thing coming from a small town in the North where, you know, if you playing an instrument, didn't look, wasn't a particularly good look, you know <laughs> what I mean? Yeah. You, yeah. You normally like the butt of a few jokes, but uh, you know, she sort of made us persevere and I'm super grateful for that because that sort of playing in orchestras as a kid and playing in, uh sort of music you know play music in large groups led me to then getting into theater and and doing like theater shows in schools and colleges and in you know and studying in theater and then I had this sort of decision around 18 of do I go to a music conservatoire and do like violin
0: mm-hmm.
2: or do I go to a drama school and do drama and um I just ended up picking I just, uh, for some reason, I ended up just going down the drama school route. It was a really, like, even race. And I just sort of felt like I could be much more creative and expressive in in drama school. Mm. And I started to have this idea of, like, um, creating work that, or trying to create work that was sort of outside of... um, outside outside of boundaries so you know we became very interested in at 18 in site specific theatre or in theatre that's happening in unconventional places or theatre that was in itself unconventional I mean everyone at 18 studies Brecht and studies all that kind of stuff but I was getting really into that sort of idea of not necessarily following the you know forms of of normal theatre I suppose West End Mm theatre so I kind of Went to the drama school. Went to Central, which you know was a was a really great three years. I did a very weird course, which kind of focused on it was a directing course, but you got to focus on um, it was more about creating theatre than mm-hmm. like getting given a script. Yeah, it was more like being a site generating sort of creative director. So it was really geared towards people that wanted to start their own companies and start their own kind of, yeah, theater work and mm-hmm. try and generate their own buzz. So I did that for three years and that was great. And then formed a theater company while I was at central with, uh, with a few friends. It was about 10 of us and we had pretty, I think pretty good success for, you know, for about three or four years. We, um, had shows at the ICA, the Institute of Contemporary Arts. We had shows at the Roundhouse. We had shows at the Young Vic. We toured really bizarre parts of Europe. So we toured Montenegro, and we toured Slovakia. Oh, wow. we, toured Pro- we toured the Czech Republic. It was a really... We only went to very, like, I suppose, uh, places that you wouldn't think that you'd go and tour. Mm-hmm, theater, mm-hmm. British theatre shows, but we kind of went and did that. And then... and. At the same time as doing that, I had a job as a projectionist in a cinema uh, as a kind of Saturday job to sort of earn some money and, Mm -hmm. you know, uh, live, pay my rent. And so I was watching three or four films a day um, every day. And a lot of the films I'd watch, you'd have to watch them, you know, over and over again because it was a 35mm projector. So It wasn't digital, so you can't just turn it on and expect that it's going to be okay. You have to sit and watch it because, you know, if you, uh, it can chew up through the projector and set on fire and all kinds of stuff. So you've got to sit and watch it. So you end up watching, you know, the same film five, six, seven times over and over again. And you end up seeing different things, seeing new things. And uh, that kind of was basically like going to film school, you know, Mm. because it was a very, it was a very, Uh, good art house cinema so they'd have like you know all your standards like kurosawa and they'd play tarantino once and they'd play coen brothers and they'd play and then they'd start playing like you know french new wave and at the same time as playing the latest blockbuster and it was really good like you sort of saw a lot of you know i watched a lot of films from a lot of different eras Mm -hmm. over about four or five year period and then that just kind of catapulted me into going, you know, what? I want to make films, you know, I want to try and, try and go down that road because I think that, yeah, the art of presentation and how things are presented, how ideas are presented is much more uh, interesting, I think, in, in film than it is in theatre. Because in theatre, you're sort of hoping that the audience notice the things that you've put in
1: yeah, by you know, directing their focus and their attention. Yeah,
2: yeah, you're you're constantly trying to direct people's eyes mm. to to a wider landscape in theater. Mm. Whereas on in film, you can you can do that. Per- you can just make a cut and do that perfectly. So mm-hmm. it's it, it sort of played to my OCD a little <laughs> more, of <laughs> like have to make things perfect. I'm yeah, like, yeah. Oh,
1: oh. Would you would you ever kind of go back to theater if you had like a certain idea and kind of Play between the film world and the theatre world.
2: Yeah, absolutely. I mean, that's a massive dream. is to slingshot back in, back into theatre because mm. you know, like, almost want to do the opposite. Sam Mendes. I was going to
1: say Sam Mendes does it. Like, yeah, he's the first you know, person I think of. Like, he successfully does theatre and he does successfully does film.
2: Yeah, and Danny Boyle. You know, Danny Boyle's the same. He still does theatre and, and film, and and I think that there's something really interesting in that, and I would love to do it. I think I think it would. You know, and I still I still keep my hand in a little bit. So I lecture every now and then at Central still. And, I, um, mm. you know, we've, we've started talking, the theatre company, we've not done anything for about 10 years. And we started talking recently about maybe doing something else. Mm. You know, we've all kind of gone off and had our own careers. So there's two of us that are filmmakers. One of us is a theatre designer who's now, uh, you know, she's on The Guardian's top 10 theatre designers, Wow, of 2020. Not that there's any more theatre in 2020 to watch, <laughs> but she she's done very well, and yep. we, our sound designers won a few uh, Olivier awards. So we're all like, we've all gone off and respectively done really that's interesting things. That's pretty well. It'd be great to kind of come back and do something, but that's a that's a you know a, a longer conversation. I think.
1: But, yeah, and and so because obviously within theatre you ha- you have to have a, a narrative mind and we were talking before this we both have dyslexia and so within film do you, because you have such a an interesting mind from a dyslexic point of view but also you have a theatre point of view and you can kind of dramatize your own sort of work, does that also affect when you're developing ideas for briefs and commercials that sort of thing and it needs, not needs to be but it tends towards to be maybe narrative sort of ideas and that sort of thing rather than abstract or minimalistic
2: well i mean i think I think i'm always searching for the thread of anything, so it doesn't have to be narrative and you know a lot of my early music videos were very narrative driven so stories about people in places and mm. they 've slowly actually over the period of the last ten years become much more abstract and much more um, much more i suppose idea driven
0: mm.
1: Because you because uh, your music of sweet nothing was very very visual, and it was just like a very yeah. clever idea.
2: Yeah, but there are, there was actually, you know, interestingly, you say sort of the drama, the, the word dramaturg, because you know that was something that was so drummed into me at drama school was to to dramaturg your own work to basically quantify it to try and understand the elements that you're putting in front of people, mm. and um, you know there was quite a quite a you know, I've gone to quite a lot of lengths about the narrative of why we're putting her around, you know, why we're setting her in a bunch of drums. Like, other than just the visual spectacle of it, what does the spectacle mean? Yeah. What what does her movement through that mean? And I sort of presented that to the label and everyone's just like, yeah, we don't care. It just looks cool. And I'm like, well, there's loads of like deep internal meaning, you know, and I find that with a, a lot of my work, this kind of, this is deep, kind of a lot of deep internal thought it's very hard to to discuss i I suppose with even the artist because they think you're mad but
1: you know yeah it's the same thing because i started in theater so when i'm when i'm working i have to have an intention or i have to there's always a sub sub subcontext to whatever is going on whether it is a very surface level job and it is just that i have to I have to find an intentional meaning. I can't just go, well, we're just going to put the, this person there because I'm like, uh, I don't know where to go from because then I can do anything.
2: Yeah. You've got to have like an internal compass and a, and a, and a thought that pulls you through. Mm. Um, so it's uh, sorry, my, my girlfriend's making sourdough bread next to me. It's the <laughs> loudest thing <laughs> I've ever heard. It's all right. <laughs> um, you might need to cut that out. No. Um, so, uh, yeah where were we uh, we're, just, uh, we're just
1: talking about the it, uh, the the, the uh, narrative kind of arc of like your brain and working in the commercial music
0: world
2: yeah i think um you've always got to have you know a, a an internal compass of a thing that you're mm. you know like a north star that you're following you mm-hmm. know and, and something that you you hold and keep true all the way through and i think that's um you know the the i think the job of a director a lot of the times is to to constantly take stuff away mm. rather than add stuff yeah because you find that throughout the process you sort of pile all these things on top of each other and then the job is to sort of remove the things that you don't need and just continue to work on the core idea mm. um and that i think as my work's got maybe a little more abstract and a little less. Um, narrative sort of beginning middle end start finishing is working more on feelings Mm. on like your gut like how your gut feels and what your gut says Mm. that process is really important to still have that sort of direction the north star
1: yeah and and so obviously obviously with with any kind of art form you develop over a a number of years and your and your work changes as what you were saying do you feel you are highly highly aware of kind of what's around you socially and politically that affects your work even if it's not a narrative thing it's more of an abstract thing but it might be like i don't know something something's, something's happening in the uk or could be somewhere else do you feel like you're kind of aware and in tune with what's going on and that affects kind of your ideas
2: yeah, definitely. I mean, we don't. I don't think any creative person makes work in a vacuum. Mm. We don't work. We don't work in a bubble. I think that even if you're not conscious of the process, the the um, you know everyone wondered why you know Bartok, the great composer, why all his music was so aggressive and why it was so uh, kind of visceral and it was hard to you know it's hard to take your ears off it and then you realize that like he's used to tanks rolling through his town every day and like you know war happening around him when he was composing and like those you know or why does Gershwin sound so romantic and move you know and there's lots of movement in his Mm -hmm. work and he's living in New York and like in the 20s and stuff's happening and things are moving and Mm -hmm. everybody's like trying to progress and push forward
0: Mm.
2: and i think whether you can see it or not i think in everyone's work there is a reflection of the time in which it's made Mm. even if you're trying not to do that you're still going to do it yeah and i like to yeah read a lot of news and sort of submerge myself in the in the kind of fabric of what's going on Mm. just so that your work has some kind of relevance to what's happening. Yeah. I think that's important because I think it's important for people to, uh, even if you're trying to create a piece of escapism that is pure escapism, you want people to know that you know what everyone's escaping from, you know, like, you know, the current situations in the world are quite heavy and quite intense. And if you want to make a piece of escapism right now, you have to know like, what it is that people are wanting to escape from or if you want to make a piece that really talks about the issues of the day that we're dealing with then you want to have a intellectual perspective on that which is robust enough to have a discussion on
1: Mm -hmm. And, and and obviously as as creatives as artists we are emotionally driven and you as you said go with your you with your gut a lot of the time do you feel that when you are obviously responding to uh, different situations and social and political things in your space and when you're writing how does your kind of emotional journey affect your work and when you are in kind of states of limbo when you're not feeling so great because you're being affected by other circumstances how do you kind of deal with that and do you inject it into your work or do you take a break and then you go okay I'm feeling this or do you feel like that those moments are the best moments to create
2: I mean this is I'm this is why I've always I put like I've always tried to uh, I've always tried to funnel my impulse my creative impulse whatever that is like whatever the reason I want to make work is why why I feel the need to sort of generate pieces I've always tried to funnel that in different art forms so I'll make try and make theater or write theater or I'll try and make music videos commercials uh short films i mean they're all under the film bracket but then i also make music so i still write music and play music and create albums and every time i feel a lull in one capacity like if i'm really struggling to make a, a film or i'm struggling to write an idea for a music video or i'm struggling with a with a concept i'll go and play music for two or three days and i won't think about film and that kind of refreshes i think your viewpoint on what you were struggling with because i think a lot of the a lot of these mental blocks writer's blocks things like that are they your brain almost going slow down Mm. i need to work this out subconsciously before Mm. i let you loose with the tools you know it's like it's almost like you're not allowed the toys in the toy box because you've not worked it out yet yeah you're gonna make a bloody mess so (laughs) let me just give me two days and i'll work it out so i think you've got to let your brain kind of find its way around that and then you know by going into a different room metaphorically for a few days when you come back you normally find that the answer is subconsciously kind of lingering and you can pluck it out of the air, you know.
1: Yeah, it's amazing how if you just detach, deattach your brain from what you're kind of focusing on at this moment in time, refocus on another area, and subconsciously your brain's already still yeah. working in that area, and then suddenly you've got a new idea, and you're like, how is that even possible, that I've been creative in another area, but my brain's still working on that that problem over there?
2: Yeah, I mean, I'm sure this isn't a psychologically sound um Piece of advice. I'm sure psychologists would say don't do this, but I, I generally treat my brain like a separate thing. Mm. Like I sort of basically, I'm an idiot that's driving a really good car because <laughs> I'm unaware of the capacity of my own brain. I don't know how good it is. I don't know how bad it is. I don't know, you know, I, but I, I'm a bit of an idiot fumbling around in the dark and this thing just keeps sort of firing out things that I'm like wow that's fucking cool actually (laughs) but I think by having that detachment from it I suppose from the working process of my brain or
0: Mm.
2: I'm not too hard on it you know I treat it like it's a sort of separate person so I'm never like tough on it if it can't think of anything I'm never like uh, upset if like you know i miss a deadline or something i'm like my brain wouldn't work i'm just like well you know it's just doing its thing man it's just whatever it's doing its thing i don't know like i'm not gonna police it yeah yeah and i think it's sort of like quite a kind way of dealing with your own creativity but you know psychologists would probably say you're sort of heading for a you're heading for a schizophrenia if you keep like, <laughs> doing that but i don't know no, but-, but i think it i think it, it, it i find it like a really good way of of like yeah, being kind to yourself, you know, when you're trying to make work and you're getting frustrated.
1: Yeah, no, I totally. I mean, I don't know if it's because we're both dyslexic, but I, my brain totally works like that as well. I just let my brain do its thing, and I go, okay, yeah, the yeah. thought comes. But I also, I'm also like you that I have lots of different interests and passions. So if I'm, I, I like to pick things up. I, I, I always have that kind of quote of, um, why not from Kevin Hart, going, why can't I write? Why can't I just go and do that? So I get yeah. so absorbed with one thing and then I go how can I be creative with another thing? Okay, let's just do a bit of photography because I've got an idea and then suddenly I'll come back to whatever I was doing same as you and then suddenly I've got a yeah. brand new idea or a totally fresh approach to it because I was yeah. investing my time in another area.
2: I mean, it's good to you. Um, I basically just live and talk in metaphors constantly so apologies <laughs> if this uh, no. podcast is just a bunch of metaphors that don't make any sense but I think your brain is like, um, you know, is like a field that you've got to, you've got to uh, sow seeds in and grow the right crops in, and you know, we all know from the agriculture of the land that if you are a monocrop, your soil will be terrible quality and you'll mm. struggle to grow things. So if you just constantly grow corn, you're gonna you're gonna ruin the soil. Mm. So you've got to constantly move your you've got to replow the field, re-sow seeds, change the seeds up, do different things. You can always come back to what you've done, and I think that that uh, realization that your that your creative landscape is a living organism, mm. and you've got to treat it. properly, you got to water it. You got to rest it. You got to do all the things that you would do if it was a physical landscape,
0: mm.
2: and that's um, is really helpful. I think in in you know, and it's bizarre. Like I always thought. It's funny you say Kevin Hawks. Like for me, it was always Will Smith. I was like, oh, you know, Will Smith yeah. can do anything, and nobody cares because he's brilliant at everything. Like, yeah, he can rap, and everyone's totally fine. Nobody's like, what's he rapping for? He's like an amazing rapper. Then he's in a TV show; and he's brilliant. Then he's a um, he's a film star, and everyone's like, brilliant, like fine. And I love you know this is in a filmmaking point of view it's like spike jones you know he can make a skate video one day he can make jackass the next he can make an oscar winning film the next day he can make a weird like commercial the next day
0: mm. and
2: just that ability to be creatively nimble is something that's always just i've just always resonated with and like i've always wanted to drive at that
1: that's same that. as me same yeah, as me yeah same. Yeah. I don't know. I don't know what. It, I don't know what it is. Is that that ability to just just to be creative? It doesn't matter what it is, cause creativity is in everything. It's just, yeah, just... It's
2: fear, fear of boredom, boredom.
1: Yeah, I know it is. It is. <laughs> it's, I I can't sit still. I have to. And then my my brain's always working. And I'm going, Oh, it wouldn't be an amazing idea to like shoot that, or wouldn't it be a great idea to just write this little poem thing? And I and I then I'm like I'm off, and I and I go do it but it's it's really interesting but also because of your because of your polymath sort of brain and you're very good at lots of different things have you ever come across like a massive challenge that you've had to overcome in different areas um
2: i mean it's hard to think of like uh, you know a challenge in in its you know in one instance but i think Mm. because i think everything's got is a bit of a challenge it's hard to get up some days you know it's hard everything has its like challenge but I think um you know the what's that is that Nelson Mandela quote which isn't meant for creativity it's meant for social justice but we'll um we'll, we'll, that. we'll just yeah. slowly borrow it for one minute which is that the problem with climbing mountains is when you get to the top of a mountain you realize how many more mountains you have to climb and that's the you know, and that—that's the interesting thing about any creative endeavour. Once you get to the top of one mountain and you—you've pushed the rock up the hill, you suddenly go, "Actually, I've got to do it again." Because look at that mountain over there; that looks like it's got a good view, and that looks like it's got a good view. So, mm. all of these things that, you know, they are—they are challenge—they are, chal- are challenges, you know, to 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 try and create even like the smallest music video. You know, I get sent a lot of sort of a lot of people reach out to me in a really nice way and i would encourage it because it's really lovely you know they reach out with like the first music video they've made or like the first thing and they want some advice or some tips Mm. and i love watching them because i just know you know i can see the journey that they're going on Mm -hmm. and i think the challenge of making anything committing anything to film committing any paint to a canvas committing a note to a to a recording device committing anything to anything is bloody hard so yeah. i think you know i think it, you know major props to anyone that, that does do it so i think it's uh yeah challenges in everything i think th- the hardest thing though if you want like an actual story of a real physical thing would probably be making i made a Coldplay video in a in an ice rink in Germany.
1: I remember that, seeing this video. I was so amazed by this. I was like, "Oh my god!" Because Everglow, I think it was cool, wasn't it?
2: Yeah, 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 yeah. It's um, it's a, you know, it it started as a really simple idea, which, you know, so the track, uh, you know, he obviously had a very well publicized uh, personal life, and the track, I think, reflects that in a really nice and beautiful way. But mm-hmm. It was like, you know, and I was quite quite humbled i think by the insight of that track which is that you know the thing that you miss when you break up with someone isn't necessarily the person it's the sort of support and the Mm. see there how much they were kind of they they leave a space yeah yeah that you can you can see and you know you can almost point at that is where that person used to inhabit in my life Mm. and then So I was trying to think of this idea of like seeing the support that someone used to give you without seeing it.
0: Mm. And
2: I kind of came across this creative pathway of sort of figure skating and ice skating, but seeing uh, seeing an ice skater and she's dancing with a partner that you can't see. Mm. That was the thing that I kind of was running at. But the actual physical making of that job was insane. It was completely insane because we had to find an, uh, an ice rink that was close to where they were touring and they had very specific dates because Chris was in the video at one, in one version of the video that was cut he was in it so he was on the shoot date they're on the shoot and so we had to shoot it in Germany but it was July so there weren't that many ice rinks around in July most yep. of them get converted into you know into other sports right. or they get converted into uh, gig venues and stuff yeah but we found this one ice rink and um we <laughs> when we, it was the only ice rink that could work it was literally the only ice rink in europe that would work and then um, when we went over to visit it it didn't have any walls it was a completely wallless ice rink oh uh, and it was the middle of july and so the ice had melted and so and they didn't tell us that on the phone so oh. then we were like right we've got an Ice rink that has no ice on it, and we've got a space that where the all the walls have been removed, so it's just like a cantilevered ceiling, yeah, was, yeah. But, so, obviously, trying to control light in that space meant that we had to basically build four walls around an entire ice rink and then re ice an ice rink. Um, I think it was the largest blackout job in Europe. Wow, the guys, would say, and it was insane, it was just an insane job, <laughs> but it you know. And then trying to trying to do the actual trick of removing a guy that she's dancing with, who's also, you know, really tricky to make it look. I think as good as it looks, which is a massive testament to the post department that worked mm. on
0: it, which who, was a who, company
2: called Cherry Cherry.
1: Yeah, Cherry Cherry. Okay, yeah.
2: Yeah, and they they just absolutely nailed it. I mean, it was it, it's beautiful, and it's mm. beautiful because of their work. You mm-hmm. know, it could have been an absolute pig's ear, but <laughs> yeah. it was a, it was beautiful because of the work that they
1: they did on it yeah i mean all these all these challenges that we go through life obviously become make us become better as people and better as creators so it's uh yeah and it's just a test i
2: definitely i definitely think it's like the people you travel with
0: Mm, you know mm, true the the
2: team that you find as we said before nobody makes work in a vacuum you Mm. know and if you're going on a creative endeavor which is hard enough anyway Mm. making sure that you're traveling with the right people you've got the right producer you've got the right you know and they don't have to be the best the best and the right is not to be confused yeah yeah you know i think the right is the person that you can see doesn't get you but gets the idea that's Mm. the important thing Mm -hmm. you've got to remove the ego out of the conversation which is like you know it doesn't matter if they like you love you don't like you whatever do they when they think about this idea, do they get chills? Do they get, do they have an emotional response to the idea? Mm -hmm. Then they're the right person
0: Mm -hmm. and
2: deal with anything else that happens. You can deal with it as long as everyone is pulling in the same direction. Yeah,
1: for sure. And, and so over the couple of years, you've moved from different kind of uh, creative disciplines and, and still do, what would be your kind of biggest or your best kind of quote that someone has ever kind of given you that, Either you had it when you was at theatre school, or when you first started going into filmmaking. What is kind of best advice you'd give yourself when you're younger, or someone else?
2: Um, I mean, can I be so indulgent as to say this too? Of course, of course. Someone give some me someone, someone give
1: me four. So I was like, yeah, go for it.
2: <laughs> Absolute indulgence, I love it. Um, but there's two. I mean, there's a there's the sort of often quoted, famous kind of. Uh, Beckett quote which is um, you know ever tried ever failed no matter try again fail again fail better and I've always Good quite quote. liked that idea of like just failing better because mm. we're all just failing upwards like yeah. nothing is no, nothing is perfect and everyone's just trying their hardest and we're just trying to we're not even trying to get up a ladder we're just trying to uh, there's obviously something inside creative people that you're, you're trying to sort of uh, explain the human condition somewhere you're trying mm. to understand it you're trying to f- figure out what the hell we're doing here what's going on why are you here why are you here why am i here what's happening and i think if you think about it as like a constant series of failures there's something so lovely about that where you're like you know even when it's a win you're like yeah but i could do it better and you're like yeah, yeah it's constant. <laughs> you know it gives you the impetus to get Out and fail better every day, like I'm going to fail but a bit better this time, and um, that's a nice quote. And then there's another quote which I can't quite remember exactly, so I'll paraphrase it. But it's um when I was at drama school, I was sort of focused very heavily on sort of mime and clowning, and that as a creative tool, partly because I'm dyslexic, so reading a script was always
1: was Challenging. quite difficult. Yeah, <laughs> it's
2: quite know. A difficult. I know. I've got better at it now but like at the time I remember being like I'm going to do silent theater that <laughs> seems like the, <laughs> that's, that's the dyslexic's choice yeah um, but there was a there's a quote by um it's an old theater tutor uh, in Paris called Etienne de Creux, who uh, is famous for teaching Marcel Marceau how to mime so he's like sort of the godfather of of um, mime and he uh, has this quote about and um, to be, a, to be a true artist is not to be a painter. This is all metaphorical, by yeah, the yeah. way. It's not to be a painter, but to be a sculptor. Because to be a painter is inherently egotistical. Because you are taking a white piece of paper and you are making a mark on that paper. Mm-hmm. And it's full of ego about where that mark goes. Mm. But if you're a sculptor, you find a block of marble and you find the shape that already exists mm. within the marble and that i always found quite a nice quote about how to approach a piece of work because i think a lot of the time certainly when you're in quote unquote positions of power as in you are a director so in a feudal system you're at the top of the tree Mm -hmm. nobody wants to live in a feudal system we got rid of those 600 years ago i tried to and like you know the thought of I'm coming in here, this is what I want, I want it that colour on that wall and this is how it should be uh, is I think inherently a a very egotistical and destructive way of being creative. Whereas to think of yourself as a sculptor and the project as a block of marble and you're just trying to find the shape that already exists, the piece of work is already alive, already exists somewhere, you've just got to find chisel away the right thing, the right bit of uh, rock here and there. So when you're making a decision about what colour is it, instead of this is what I want and this is what I think it should be, it's like what colour is, what colour already exists here? What's the, what does it want to be? Not what do I think it should be? What does it want to be? It feels like it wants to be red because that's the colour from here. And you sort of create an internal internal dramaturgy, Mm -hmm. which I think is a nice you know, it seems to create more sympathetic, more sympathetic uh, creators and less egotistical creators. Which I hope. Amen. Anyone, <laughs> anyone that's listening, that's ever worked with me, I hope they think I'm a sympathetic creator, not an egotistical creator. But you, you know, you never know.
1: Yeah, it's a nice energy to be a sculptor, just to see what it is like. You 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 have an idea, of course, as as creatives, yeah. but when you're working with people and things, it's a being. It's being sympathetic and actually and seeing what's already at present, rather yeah. than trying what rather than getting a hammer knocking it down and then going I want that. It's about yeah. like, how do we mould things? How do we mould ourselves into what's already present and and to become yeah. better?
2: And I think it's a process from theatre that is used quite a lot, where you know at the start of a first reading or a rehearsal reading of a script, everyone will sit down and they'll read through the play and then they will talk about, you know. In a with all the heads of the department, the designers, the sound designers, the actors and the director will all sit around a table and talk about the themes that are in this play. Mm. And not only the themes that are in it, but what themes are important to us. What do we want to say? Mm. Why are we saying this? What are we doing? Mm. And I think that process creates... It puts the work at the heart of every conversation. Mm. So, you know, in, in 12 weeks' time when an actor's on a stage going, I don't think I should move like this. This feels wrong. You can... Have a conversation that reflects back to you yeah. know that initial idea of what are we doing this for, mm. and I think the film we've kind of lost that a little bit because it is so auteur driven of you know whatever Kubrick wants, Kubrick gets.
0: Mm. I
2: think going forward in the future, it'd be nice to, I think, or certainly my work, try and bring that more in so that anyone that's working on the project, it's like this is the thing we're trying to say, we're trying to say this, and so then everyone's working on the job to try and say that in their own discipline and their own medium. And then any discussions or disagreements are like, can be much, much, uh, much better communicated because you're not personally attacking people of like, you, you've done it wrong. Like, I don't think this is great. You can go, is this the right way to talk about this piece of work? Is this the right,
1: right message?
2: the right message are we saying the right thing are we doing the right thing Mm. and then you can have a much more intellectual conversation i think so it seems to be a i find it a nicer way to work
1: i think that's really really i think that's really clever to and also just to reflect on jobs that i've done that if you do put the work first it doesn't become personable it doesn't become it doesn't become i'm attacking you it's like are we just is it what is this, is this the initial idea that we set out to to, to accomplish oh is this the end result is this have we all made it to this point that we're saying yeah. what we what we initially set out to do, or are we just going i'm this is, this is my work and this is how I do things, so I'm going to do it like yeah. that rather than justify going what's the best thing for the, this idea
2: yeah. and I think if you have heads of department. You know it actually it filters all the way down like even to all the assistants that work so hard on jobs that are that are really at the at the coal face like making the work and like you know certainly in art departments and in costume design, if they all know why things are the way they are, even if it's as simple as just this is this is the sentence that we're driving at this is mm. what we want this piece to look like, how we want people to feel when they watch it, I think you what you also do as uh you know the director is just the steerer of the ship you know mm. you aren't the you aren't the ship you're just mm. the steerer of the ship and like what you get i think as the steer of the ship is you get everybody bringing their own interpretation to that core idea and mm. you'll find much more unique abstract um uh sort of individual responses to the work that you can fold in and you'll create a much more diverse piece of work it's mm. much more interesting to look at because mm. it's it's you know it's the culmination of a hive mind i think mm. all pull in the same direction
1: it's it's about serving others rather than serving yourself and serving the yeah. an idea and i think if you, yeah, if, yeah, you, yeah. if you go through in life serving others and serving the work it will yeah. have a much better result
2: and i think you know it's such a I think there's always that conversation. I think about like, is art egotistical, or is it, is it a community? Is it a, a community endeavor? And I think, you know, I think you can tell great pieces of art that that they make us better. They mm-hmm. make us a better society. They make us better people. They make, you know, even even something as harrowing as Francis Bacon. You know, when you look at his paintings, they make you. See the depths of the human psyche, which also make you understand your own
0: yeah own mind psyche, yeah, and it makes
2: you a better person for it existing. Mm. And I think, I think we can tell we're we're, we're such an image literate um, society that we can tell when something is baseless, when something is um, when it's it doesn't have that root into the ground, you mm-hmm. know, when it doesn't have that reason. And I think we can tell when things are the opposite, when they have a root, when they have a reason, and when they when they make us a better yeah a better society. I mean, it's interesting now in the context of taking down these statues around London, mm. and there's one half of the conversation which is like. You know, oh well, you can't erase history, and you go, well, you know, I don't need a statue of the moon landing to know that the moon landing happened. So, you know, it's uh, you know, we we don't need statues of things that we don't need. You know, mm. we can still learn about them any other way. And if you want to learn about a slave trader, like you know, there's books about it. This podcast is history. We don't need a statue of it. Um And I think that is, I think as a society we're sort of realizing that, like, what is. You know, we're not going to go and rip down the Angel of the North in Newcastle mm. because we look at it and it represents that city and it's a beautiful piece of art and mm. it has a resonance that we can all see whereas the statue of a slave owner we can look at it and go yeah that's not doing it anymore actually <laughs> yeah. that's like the wrong thing in the wrong place at the wrong time so let's mm. take it down because it's not it's not the it's not right anymore. It's not our better selves and how we want to see our life and mm. how we want to see our, our society, you know, it's so it's an old, they're old ideas. So let's mm. take them down because they're I not totally right.
1: agree. I totally agree. Well, I want to say thank you so much for giving your time. It's been really, really insightful to talk to you. And I, and I know that a lot of the listeners will love kind of hearing your kind of thought process on the way you kind of see yourself and the way that you create. So I'm really, really thankful for your time. Well,
2: Thank you very much for having me. Sorry, I've just uh, waffled at you for no, twenty minutes. No, it's
1: great. I said, I said, <laughs> I said to you before the po- podcast. I was like, I'm fa- I'm fascinated by people and how they and how they think because you see the work and you see how how they create things, but you don't know the behind scenes of how they kind of view themselves and view the world around them. And so doing mm. these sort of podcasts with people that I really admire is so brilliant oh, and amazing. Well, thank you very much for having me. Yeah. it was a pleasure. Thank you so much. Great. This is 360 Yourself and I'm Jamie Neal. Thank you very much for taking a moment to listen to our wonderful guests. Please subscribe to our podcast to access all our brilliant guest episodes. They are released every Sunday at 12pm. We are available on all listening platforms. Spotify, Pocket Cast, Overcast, Google Podcasts, and Castro. You can also find us on Instagram at 360 underscore yourself, Twitter at yourself360 and our host at JamieNealJN. Thank you for listening.